Hey friends, it's Fred Greenhalgh, producer here at Realm. A new episode of Ominous Thrill is ready for your ears. It's Advice After Dark. Late night radio host Belladonna delivers extreme advice to the delighted horror of her audience until a creepy listener forces her to confront the brutal consequences of her show. Here's a preview. Welcome to my live stream, Bella. Say hello to everyone. What do you want? Click the link. Watch along. I'm not clicking links from psychos. You put that trash on the radio every night and I'm the psycho. You sound like you need help. I'm not one of your fake callers. My show is very, very real. Do you want to know what it's called? No, I don't. It's called Belladonna Gets What's Coming. Starring you. What? It's really starring me. But it's all about you. And you'd be surprised how many people want to watch you get what's coming. I called the police. They'll be here any minute. Yeah, well, we should be done before they get here. Find Ominous Thrill out now, everywhere you listen. Welcome to The Gangster, book six in the Galactic Football League series. Written and performed by Scott Sigler, The Gangster is suitable for ages 12 and up and contains graphic violence. The Gangster is also available as a signed, numbered, limited edition hardcover while supplies last. To order, go to scottsigler.com slash store. Hello, junkies. This week, I took a break from GFL 7 to work on a screenplay that Rob Otto and I have been working on for years. Yes, the same Rob Otto who is on our Story Smack live streams. We scheduled this session a year ago because I thought I would be done with GFL Book 7 by now, the second draft. As I mentioned last week, I am not done. We started working on this screenplay four years ago. It's a horror comedy screenplay. We're having a ball with it. But we ran aground on software and version control issues as we were shipping files from here to Detroit and back. Things got all messed up and we just sort of ran out of steam. When he got here specifically to work on it, we started using a program called Writer Duet. It is screenwriting software, but it is uh, one of those all online type things like Google Docs specifically for Writer Duet. It's an online app and we can see each other's changes in real time. There's no version control issues at all. So this solved all of our problems. Of course, we could have found out about it years ago when we were in different places and uh, not discovered it together when we're finally in the same room. But oh well, we're loaded for a bear now. We finished the first draft of the screenplay. It's 115 pages, which is at least five pages too long, probably more like 20 pages too long for where we're at on our our quest to get a movie made. Uh, But we are pumped about it. We got it done. That's the most important thing. Now that screenplay goes on the digital shelf as I hammer away on GFL Book 7 right up until we send you the gangster hardcovers. We expect to start shipping those in the second week of August, and then it will take as long as it takes to ship 1,750 signed numbered copies. When we do finally get those shipped out, I'll be crawling into a writerly hole, and it's nothing but GFL 7 second draft until that is done. Enough jibber-jabber. Let me get you caught up on the story so far, then we're all going to kiss off into the sky. Previously on The Gangster, Quentin has given Greedock the Splithead the gender-changing Gibblejuance hormone. Now, all wait to see if Greedock lives or dies. And Killian shows Quentin something that threatens to alter the course of history. What is it? Find out next on The Gangster, episode number 34. The Beginning
He couldn't see. He couldn't move. He couldn't defend himself. He couldn't give orders. Sometime after Barnes had forced him to drink the gibblejuance, things had started to happen to his body. Strange things. Painful things. He'd lost control of his muscles. Unable to stop himself, he'd brought his knees up to his sides, middle arms wrapping around the folded legs, holding them in place. His pedipalp arms, even the broken one, had moved of their own accord, hands against his face, elbows against his chest. He felt like a puppet, a puppet controlled by ancient instincts. He knew little about what was happening to him. Why would he have ever learned about the process? He'd had no desire to change. There had always been an organization to run, enemies to defeat, an empire to build. What he knew, he'd learned as a child, in hushed whispers spoken with other leaders in school. Even at an early age, he had learned how to spot the leaders who wanted to someday make the change. A certain dreaminess to their voices when speaking about possible futures. A particular gleam in the eye. Sometime after his body tucked itself into a tight ball, he felt something oozing out of his carapace. In a few small spots at first, then his entire body. Later, that material began to harden, as if he was a candied chuchalik. He felt very much at ease. There was nothing he could do now but wait. Those schoolyard whispers, he remembered some of them. He remembered young leaders talking about a cocoon. Inside of one, a body would undergo a metamorphosis. No sense of his surroundings. He felt slightly warmer, but that was all. He could not see. He could not talk. Inside his cocoon, he felt things growing within his body, shifting, altering, changing. A twinge of pain, small at first, here then gone. Had he imagined it? Another, and another. Not his imagination. Another, spreading, expanding. Agony roiled through his body, pain so intense even he could not shove it down. If he had been able to move, Greedock the Splithead would have screamed. Cold. When the mine had been abandoned, the owners had basically shut off the power and closed the airlock doors behind them. Thanks to the cold of space, the dining area's cheap tables and chairs, designed for warriors, workers, and leaders, had easily endured the test of time. Quentin sat at one of those tables, along with Killian, Aya, and Beans in his Schmeck suit. On the other side of the table, Masal the Efficient and Virak the Mean. Everyone's breaths came out as cones of vapor. Beans had the facility's temperature barely high enough to stop sentience from getting hypothermia. Otherwise, heat radiation would build up and make the big asteroid noticeable to any bat ships that might be searching for an escaped prisoner. Killian had given Quentin cold weather gear, a black parka, insulated pants, heavy boots that were a bit too small. Killian and Aya both wore their gray armored exosuits sans helmets. Aya wore a white knit hat that complemented her amethyst skin, 
at least the areas of skin that weren't marked with nasty purple-black bruises. Killian seemed to be content to let his thick dreadlocks keep his head warm. Neither Killian nor Aya seemed to have any problem with the uncomfortable exosuits, as if wearing the rigs for long periods of time was a fairly standard procedure on the Olorun. It was so cold that even Masal and Virak wore light jackets. Someone had found a storage locker with centuries-old quith clothes still in it. The little ruler departed for Einath, Killian said. Let's cross our fingers that it makes it without being detained by the bats. Whether it does or not, though, we're here until Greedock's metamorphosis is complete. Masal, you asked for this meeting. We're all ears. Masal had demanded the meeting far more than he'd asked for it. The worker and Virak seemed to have put themselves in charge of Greedock's care. The cocoon has hardened, Masal said. That means the probability of Greedock's survival through full transformation is much higher. There are short-term, mid-term, and long-term needs. The short-term need is care for the cocoon. It must be cleaned daily and monitored for infection by microorganisms. With no physician available, Virak and I will perform this duty. I'd be happy to help, Quentin said. This is my choice, so it's my responsibility. I don't expect the two of you to carry the load. Masal's fur ruffled. Absolutely not. Virak and I will tend to her needs. The worker was already using the feminine pronoun. We must make this clear, Masal said. Now that the cocoon is formed, only Quith may see Greedock. We have already disabled all cameras in her chamber. If any of you lay eyes upon her, Virak and I will kill you. Does everyone understand? The worker showed no sign of fear. Quentin had never seen him this self-assured. Killian nodded. I understand. So do I, Aya said. Blah, 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 works for me, Bean said, his Schmeck speaker film carrying his voice. Aya looked simultaneously miserable and angry. No smile on her face now, no adoring gazes. She'd changed, somehow, at least in the way she interacted with Quentin. Because of the fight in the cell? Because of Sakacorn's death? Because Greedock had been forced into Toltafine? Quentin didn't know. The thud of Masal's middle arm fist slamming into the table made everyone jump. Quentin, he said, do you understand? Curls of black swirled on the worker's cornea. Quentin blinked, stunned. Had Masal the efficient just yelled at him? The worker was like a different sentient altogether. Maybe because no leader was present and a quith had to take charge. Yeah, Quentin said. I get it. Steer clear of Greedock. But, I mean, if there's other things I can do, then I want to help. The black curl slowed, partially faded. You can help with the midterm need, which is food, Masal said. Normally for Toltafine, the leader has her mate selected and her mate has provided sustenance. Since this life-altering event was so poorly planned, we must hurry. In seven to eight standard days, we will need meat, hundreds of kilos of it, preferably from animals native to Quith. Chochanks, Kandashiks, Kushes, and Githworts. The Oleran must go out and acquire a load as soon as possible. Quentin was about to object, knowing that sending the ship could draw the bats here, 
but Killian spoke first. We have a hold full of frozen Chochank and Candashill, he said. 10,000 kilos of it. We have plenty. And 200 live Githwars. Massal turned slowly. He looked at Aya for a moment, then addressed Killian. You have quith meat, Massal said. Tons of it. Why? Aya answered. It's what we were hauling when I got Sackacorn's message about Quentin being imprisoned at the borehole. We reacted immediately to rescue him. Come to think of it, Skipper, I guess we're on the hook for that missed delivery, eh? We won't be popular with that dealer, that's for sure, Killian said. We'll have to make it up to him later. Chalita Sackacorn had been a great liar. Aya Omiata, however, was not. There was more to the story than she was telling. Such a fortunate coincidence, Masal said. That will give us more than enough food for the first few days after the cocoon opens. Then we will need to acquire larger live animals. Quentin didn't know why Aya was lying, but Masal either didn't notice or didn't care. That brings us to long-term needs, the worker said. I am putting together a list of leaders that will make viable mates for Greedock. We must find the right leader to absorb all of Greedock's assets and provide for her long-term well-being. Quentin, surely you have contemplated possible mates. Who do you recommend? Masal didn't bother to hide his contempt. He obviously thought this was yet another element of the plan that Quentin hadn't considered. Which was mostly true, but Quentin had one hell of a name to start with. Chalton the Moral, Quentin said. He told me to contact him at any time. I think this might be the right moment to take him up on that. Virak finally spoke. Suddenly you know the Lord Governor well enough to convince him he should be in Greedock's harem? I don't know him well at all, Quentin said. I just figured, you know, he's well-connected. He might have candidates in mind that aren't involved in organized crime, and— This is perfect, Massal said. Greedock's asset portfolio is extensive. Charlton would consider courting Greedock for the cash flow alone, as it will bolster his re-election efforts. What the Lord Governor doesn't keep for himself, he can disperse to his supporters to further entrench their loyalty. And a mate of Charlton's caliber is worthy of Greedock's legacy. Well done, Quentin. Quentin felt a flush of pride. Did he need praise from us all? No. But maybe it was a ray of hope that they could repair their broken friendship. Or, at least, maybe make things a little less awkward going forward. Maybe. Charlton is the top candidate, Massal said. Quentin, you will contact him as soon as we leave this place. I will tell you when to do it and what to say. In the meantime, I will focus on other options. If this pairing does not suit Charlton, we will move on to other leaders that have significant business interests. Quentin wondered if business interests included gangsters. Probably. Any quith crime lord would kill to acquire Greedock's organization. Makes sense to me, Killian said. Massal, it seems you have a plan. My crew and I are at your disposal. With difficulty, Aya stood. Her cracked ribs were going to take time to heal. That's it then, she said. We know who is taking care of our guest, and we're not going anywhere for a while, so can we be done with this meeting? Beans moved the Olerin's rejuve tank into the facility, and I'm due for a session. Yes, Massal said. We are done for now. Killian stood. Quentin, since your services aren't needed for Greedock's care, I could certainly use some help. 
Bean says it's safe to do cold maintenance on the Oleron as long as we don't activate any systems on the ship. I'll have Zan drop an assignment chart. Do you mind getting your hands dirty? Quentin shook his head. Not at all. He would be happy to do something other than sit on his ass and let everyone else do all the work. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch. And organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Repairs. Finger squeezing the trigger, the gun kicking in his hand, the hole in Sandoval's head. Sandoval, falling, his life gone before he hit the floor. Quentin woke with a scream, staring into darkness. The lights had gone off in the locker room. Coach was in here, on the floor. Coach needed help. Quentin shivered, but not from the nightmare. Cold air clawed at his skin. He wasn't in the locker room. Reality rushed in. He was inside an asteroid, many light years away from Jupiter, away from Ionath, light years away from Becca. Quentin sat up, sending pains through his body, through his head. His fight wounds were still with him. Only for a few more days, though, thanks to Beans bringing the rejuve tank into the complex. At least Quentin's teeth were fixed. He gathered up the thin blankets he'd kicked off in the night wrapped them around himself. He was sleeping on the floor. The room's ancient cot was far too small for him. Lights, he said, and the room's lights came on. How long had he slept? He checked the dim display on the wall. He'd slept for five hours. 
perhaps six, he couldn't quite remember what time he'd gone to sleep. Maybe this had been a miner's room, or an administrator's. No way of knowing. At least the floor was tiled and flat, not lumpy stone, and for that, he was grateful. Four days since Quentin had force-fed Greedock the Gibblejuans. Three days since the little ruler left. Had the yacht made it out of Concordia space? Had the pilot delivered Greedock's confession to Danny Lundy? Were the wheels of justice again turning the right way? More important than any of that, did Becca know Quentin was safe? Becca. Where was she? How bad was she hurting? Did she think he was dead? Hell, she could be dead for all he knew. She and the baby both. Maybe Greedock had done something to her before he'd come to the borehole. Quentin breathed out, pushed the idea away. He couldn't think about things like that now, or he'd go crazy. He had four or five more days to go until Greedock's transformation was complete. And then what? Then Quentin and Massal would try to reach Chalton the Moral. Hopefully that would work out. Any threat from Greedock was soon to be gone forever. Quentin had done it. He'd won. Yet he couldn't shake the guilt at what he'd had to do to achieve that victory. He felt so tired. Quentin closed his eyes, and when he did, he saw Jonathan Sandoval's dead face staring back at him. So when he didn't have a nightmare about torture, he had one about killing a man? Heck of a choice. Either way, he wasn't going back to sleep. Quentin stood, picked up his clothes off the floor, and got dressed. He might as well get to work on the list of jobs his father had given him. Even after four days of scraping rust, greasing hatch hinges, cleaning food prep equipment, and scrubbing down anything that could be scrubbed down, it still felt strange to wear an exosuit inside the Oleron. Hold that light, Killian said. I think I found it. Killian was halfway inside a tight crawl space, hunting for the leak that dribbled water into the rumpus room. No leak now, of course, not with the ship at ambient temperature, but sooner or later, the Oleron would power up, heat up, and Killian wanted the problem solved. A few portable lanterns gave some illumination, but with Killian's bulk magnified by his exosuit and helmet, there wasn't even enough room in the crawl space to clamp a light. I don't get why you don't have beans fix it, Quentin said. He's so much smaller. Two reasons. First, he's doing the important work of punch drive maintenance. Second, because when I told him I was going to fix the leak, he laughed at me. Have you ever had a male Sklorno laugh at you? No. It's demeaning, Killian said. I'm going to show that little fluffball he's wrong. I mean, I already fixed this leak three times, so I don't know what he's laughing at. Maybe he's laughing that you didn't actually fix it? Fourth time is the charm. Seriously, hold that light still. Quentin realized he'd let the beam come off the spot Killian was working on. Sorry, he said, and retrained the light. Killian's gloved hands worked on what looked like a rusted pipe hidden deep in the crawl space. One thing was for certain when it came to Killian and the ship's crew, they didn't let a moment go to waste. Quentin wondered what their normal workload was like to make them so backed up on maintenance. The asteroid was a boring place. Masal and Virak were always with Greedock's cocoon. Aya, Zan, and Beans were busy with their own maintenance and repair duties. So much for being a two-time Galaxy Bowl champ and rich beyond measure, here, Quentin was little more than an unskilled assistant janitor. 
He wondered what Becca was doing. If she was on the Hypatia, she'd be safe. Probably. Had there been more protests? If only he could get word about the little ruler's progress, about whether Danny Lundy was hard at work trying to turn things around. Quentin, keep the damn light steady, will ya? Once again, he'd lost focus. Sorry. Killian wiggled his way free of the crawl space, bonking his helmet on the way out. You're distracted, he said. Thinking about your wife and kid again? Quentin nodded. I just want them out of danger, you know? It's killing me to be here while they're out there. I have no idea who might be after them. I can imagine how hard it is to be away from them. Quentin felt his father's empathy, saw it on his face, even through a scratched and battered helmet visor. Killian had spent time away from his own wife and children. Too much time. Killian had had no choice, just as Quentin had no choice now. It is, Quentin said. I'd do anything to protect them. Killian took the flashlight out of Quentin's hands, set it aside. You'd do anything? Anything, Quentin said instantly. The longer I'm away from Becca, the more I realize she matters more than anything else. Killian's lips pressed into a thin line. I waited to bring this up until the Greedock situation had been resolved, he said. It's as resolved as it can be for the moment. I need to talk to you about something important. Something that involves the safety of your wife and child. Something that involves the safety of everyone, everywhere. A sinking sensation. Quentin had endured conversations like this before. An invasion is coming, Killian said. When we rescued Yitzhak, we learned some bad things. Very bad. Quentin closed his eyes and sighed. Petra, Becca, Yitzhak, and Big Mike all thought he could somehow impact things on a bigger scale. And now Killian? Quentin was done with all of it. He'd had enough problems to worry about without yet another person buying into a bizarre delusion that he was some kind of savior. Not you too, Dad. Please don't tell me you think I can have some part in saving the damn universe. I've told everyone else, so now I'll tell you. I'm not a soldier. Killian's expression hardened. Then it's time you learned how to be one, he said. I will teach you. I will teach you. Those words instantly infuriated Quentin. Killian Carbonaro hadn't taught his son how to read, how to play catch, how to throw a football, or ride a bike. He hadn't done those things because he'd been gone. Now, finally, a father was offering to teach his son, and what was the subject? War. You'll teach me how to kill. Killian nodded. When it comes to that, I'm not just good. I'm the best. I'm not proud of it, but I don't deny it either. Whether you step up and use your gifts to help fight this invasion or not, there's going to be killing. Killing on a scale you can't comprehend. The only question is, when the killing's done, will you and I still be around? Will your wife, your child? A message just like Petra's, just like Becca's. It shouldn't have made a difference if the message now came from his estranged father, but it did. It was all Quentin could do to keep himself alive, let alone millions of others. I'm a football player. That's all I am. He'd said those words before. Before, he'd said them with conviction. Now, the words sounded hollow, even to him. 
Come with me, Killian said. I need to show you something. The Cargo Quentin and Killian walked through the Oleron's corridors. Their handheld lights played along the floor, the walls. When all the lights were on, the ship looked beat up and mismatched. With two narrow beams moving along the surfaces, however, Quentin felt like he was walking through a derelict craft, a wreck floating across the void, waiting to be claimed for salvage. Anyone ever tell you the ship could use a paint job? Killian sighed. Sorry we don't have all the accoutrements of your fancy luxury yacht, son. Let's just go back to Quentin for now, all right? I'm still adjusting to the fact that I was never an orphan at all. In truth, though, Quentin was already getting used to having Killian in his life. And out here, hiding from civilization, maybe Quentin better understood why his father had stayed away. I've followed your career a little bit, Killian said. I know your close friends call you Q. Can I at least use that? The man had risked his life for Quentin. Twice. First to rescue Quentin from the borehole, then to help eliminate the threat of Greedock. Aya, Beans, and Zan had taken those same risks. All four members of the Oleron's crew were still in grave danger, yet here they were, sticking it out. Friends. That felt right. Surprisingly so. Yeah, Quentin said. Q will work. They walked on, ovals of light playing off the ship's corridors. It's funny, Killian said. Well, funny isn't the right word at all. It's ironic, maybe. My own child thought he was an orphan, when, thanks to me, there's thousands of kids out there that grew up without parents. Thousands. Quentin had killed one man up close and could barely sleep at night because of it. Killian likely had far more ghosts in his head. You told me you didn't want to talk about what happened on the Keeling. I assume that's where all the killing happened? Killian nodded. Some of it. I'm still not going to talk about that, all right? No harshness in the man's voice. He was asking Quentin to leave it alone, not ordering him to do so. All right, Quentin said. They continued on in silence until they reached a dented, rust-speckled sliding door painted with scratched and fading writing that read Cargo Hold 5. The older man slid the door aside. It opened with barely a sound. Like most things on the Oleron, the door might look like it belonged in a scrapyard, but it was well-maintained and worked perfectly. Most things, except for the rumpus room leak, maybe. Through the open door, blackness. Too bad we can't turn the lights on, Quentin said. For this, we won't need them. Killian stepped inside. Quentin followed. A large cargo hold. Quentin's flashlight beam played against the walls, dented and dinged for much use, and the roof support bars maybe ten meters above. Over here, Killian said. Quentin caught up to him. Killian's beam played against what looked to be the only object in the large hold, a white cargo container, the kind hauled on flatbed wheel trucks or stacked on freighters. Rust-spotted, dented, and well-used, it seemed to be right at home in the beat-up cargo hold. The container was locked down with twist locks at the corner, which was normal, but also with heavy steel mesh cables that stretched over the top and secured it to the hold's deck. Whatever was inside, the Oleron crew wasn't taking any chances that the container might shift or break free during flight. For a moment, 
Quentin thought Killian was flicking his flashlight beam across the cargo container's side, but he wasn't. The man's hands were shaking. This is it, Killian said. This container is an Abernessian secret weapon. The Abernessians. The Wasps. Even when Greedock had held the upper hand, Quentin hadn't sensed any fear in his father. He sensed it now, in Killian's facial expressions, in his trembling voice. A secret weapon, Quentin said, of the Abernessians, the mythical, evil alien horde that's coming to kill us all, those Abernessians? Believe me, they're real. Why exactly do you have an Abernessian secret weapon? It's a long story, Killian said. Come take a walk around it with me. Was the man crazy? Was this a setup somehow, maybe perpetrated by Petra Prowat, to get Quentin to buy into all this hero crap? They slowly walked around the container. Killian remained quiet. The fear radiating from him felt unnerving. Quentin looked the cargo container up and down. Nothing out of the ordinary. After one lap, Killian stopped walking. Notice anything unusual about it? Quentin started to say no, then assumed it was a trick question. He again let his light play along the white container's dented, scratched side. Looks normal enough to me, Quentin said. I was never a full-time trucker, but I worked heavy equipment in the mines. I drove flatbed trucks carrying containers like this more times than I can remember. Killian nodded. You wouldn't give something like this a second glance, right? Probably not. If it walks like a round bug and hisses like a round bug, then you think it's a round bug, right? You gonna show me what this weapon is or what? Killian handed Quentin his flashlight. Point that here, the older man said, tapping the side of the cargo container. Quentin did as he was told. Killian knelt, pressed his hands to the cargo container's side. He patted his palms three times, paused, tapped twice, paused, then gave four more taps. He moved his right hand in a clockwise circle, his left counterclockwise. Quentin noticed his hands followed two faint, brownish circles smeared on the white surface. After Killian made three circles with both hands, a glowing vertical seam appeared, splitting the cargo container side, turning one long rectangle into two smaller ones. One of the rectangles rolled to the left, the other rolled right. As they did, the cargo hold filled with pale blue light. Quentin stared in at a mass of gleaming, clear material that glowed various shades of blue-white. He saw things that looked like transparent pipes, but weren't. Things that looked like valves, but weren't. Glistening blocks that seemed as dense as granite. Filaments as delicate as a spider's web. A cargo container filled with a bizarre art display made of ice and diamond and glass. He had never seen anything like it. He suddenly felt small. Microscopic insignificant, as if he was in the presence of something godlike, something that made his skin crawl. He now understood Killian's fear. What is this? It's a, it's a weapon? What does it do? It kills planets, Killian said. The simplicity of the statement caught Quentin off guard. It also brought him back to his senses. Let me get this straight, he said. The alien invaders that are supposedly coming to wipe out life in our galaxy are going to, what, blow up planets with a bomb that looks like a cargo container? 
And said cargo container is somehow in the possession of my father, whom I would have never known about if I hadn't been arrested by the bats. And when said father rescues said son, said father has said super duper planet killing mystery weapon just sitting in a cargo hold. How about a few details? Killian raised his hands, palms out to the same place he'd had them before the container sides had slid away. He made three circles, but in the opposite direction, counterclockwise with his right, clockwise with his left. The container sides rolled back into place, locked home without a sound, returning the cargo hold to darkness. Let's get a brew, Killian said. I'll tell you what I know. Quentin shook his head. How about we stay sober for this one? Killian's eyes narrowed. What's that supposed to mean? It means I think you drink too much, Quentin said. This is important stuff, so... The overhead lights flickered, came on full. Quentin felt a thrumming under his feet, machinery somewhere in the ship flaring to life. What the hell, Killian said. He pressed a button on the side of his helmet. Zan, come in. What's happening? We're supposed to be in mothball mode. Quentin heard Zan's response in his own helmet. We have detected four Kretorakian ships en route, including one capital-class vessel. I am activating all systems so we can make a run for it. The bats had found them. You have been listening to The Gangster, book six in the Galactic Football League series, written and narrated by Scott Ziegler. Follow Scott on Instagram and Twitter, where he is at Scott Ziegler, one word, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Scott Ziegler. For more information on the Galactic Football League series and for more free audiobook podcasts, visit scottsigler.com. The Gangster was directed by A. Sigler, engineered by Steve Rickyberg. Copyright 2020, Empty Set Entertainment. Theme music is the song They're Watching Me by the band Super Weapon. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.